Welcome to Tyranny Today, a weekly show that focuses on how autocracies around the world threaten our freedoms here, at home, and in other free countries. With a hindsight of several days, it is worth looking into the events that unfolded over the weekend between Rostov and southern Russia, all the way to Kaluga and Tula Oblast, some 1,000 kilometers north, near Moscow. The early media assessments of the upheaval characterized the events as a coup, and indeed, coups, coup d'etat, have a long tradition in post-Soviet Russia. There was the Yanayev coup in the summer of 1991 that attempted to set the clock back on the Soviet demise, but instead precipitated the unraveling of the vampire empire. And then there was the 1993 autogolpe that opposed Yeltsin and the Russian parliament in the grips of Ruslan Hasbulatov and Alexander Rutskoy. Barely three decades later, here we have a private army, lionized until then, for being the only Russian force capable of any success in Ukraine, and threatening the foundations, the very foundations, of the Kremlin's claim on power. So we bo- before we attempt to untangle the intricacies of these events, let us first analyze what characterizes a coup d'etat, one of those French terms that permeated English language successfully and completely with accent aigu on the E of état, that is the state. Coups are one of the four pathways towards autocracy. When regimes fail, it happens in one of four ways. One is through popular insurrection against the governing elite. That's what happened in Egypt and what precipitated the fall of Mubarak's regime. Another one is through imposition from the outside. Stalin perfected this art by imposing friendly, dependent regimes all along the Soviet periphery in the mid to late 1940s. Yet another way is to undermine the existing system by creeping authoritarianism of the elected officials. Hitler's power consolidation in the 1930s is the classic example here, but so is Venezuela since the 1990s, Hungary today, and of course Putin's Russia. And then there are military coups. In a military coup, a military elite has specific grievances that may be of no relevance to the broader population, but which are not typically addressed by the governing elites. Historical studies of coups point to two recurrent correlations. First, military coups occur more often in countries characterized by low economic development. And secondly, they happen more frequently in countries with a history of military coups. West Africa is here the absolute world champion in military-led upheavals, but so is Thailand and Turkey, which also share a rich tradition in it, as did some South American countries, not least Argentina in the 1970s. Russia now falls into this category, starting with the rebellion on battleship Potemkin in 1905, and then Kornilov's coup in 1917, which failed, but eventually precipitated events that led to the Bolshevik Revolution. Why are the military a frequent source of regime change? In many polities, they are the most structured, disciplined organization whose members trust each other, in particular if they share the same ethnic background. In some cases, it is only the military that can successfully overcome ethnic cleavages that pervade the country's social and economic rifts. In terms of the goals set by the military staging coup, one could differentiate between two types. One is the general regime change, 
This might also lead to a more ambitious plan of introducing a different redistributive policy if the prevailing socioeconomic conditions are viewed by the aspiring junta as unfair. But equally frequent, if not more frequent, is a less ambitious goal of elite reshuffle. In this case, the meritory group does not attempt a wholesale transformation of a system, but limits itself to supporting personnel changes within the existing regime. From what we can glean from the shifting statements by Russia's hot dog hawker turned its number one warlord, the objectives of the coup are limited precisely to this, trigger a shakeup in the top echelons of the military. Prigozhin had many access to grind here. Already back in 2018, while his units were actively involved in Syria, Russia's Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, gave the United States the green light to eliminate a group of mercenaries exposed in an area of Dai uh, al-Zaul, beyond Russia's direct area of influence. The U.S. then liquidated 200 of Prigozhin's men. Similar allegations of backstabbing were in recent months advanced by Prigozhin, who criticized the army for not channeling ammunition to his troops in Bakhmut. But if the objective of the last week's coup was to sideline Sergei Shoigu, then by this yardstick, the coup failed spectacularly. As early as Monday morning, the Russian TV paraded Wagner Group's nemesis, Shoigu, reviewing war plans with Russian commanders near the front line. Putin and Shoigu have been close for years, sharing hunting and fishing adventures in the general's native Tuvan Republic, a beautiful region of predominantly Turkic speakers north of Mongolia. Nor are there any signs that the chief of the general staff of the armed forces, Valery Gerasimov, is in any immediate danger to be sidelined. The immediate commentary regarding their staying power brings up either Putin's loyalty to these men or, in the case of Gerasimov, the paucity of alternatives. Indeed, at least until the outbreak of the war in 2022, Western analysts considered Gerasimov to be among the most talented military strategies worldwide. It is not clear who could replace him. Several anti-Putin voices from inside Russia and among the Russian diaspora have claimed since Saturday that the entire operation was staged as some kind of, as Russians call it, maskirovka. Now, Several factoids seem to argue against such a hypothesis. First, the regime has been seriously weakened by this episode, not only internally, as Prigozhin's stature had grown in recent months and he appeared to be acclaimed by the residents of Rostov. The worst for Putin is the loss of face, in particular in the East among his allies in Tehran and in Beijing. And his nervous, irate, brittle appeal on TV did little to mask this. Both regimes, Iranian and Chinese, were stunned by the unexpected developments. China's CCTV's military channel first reported in detail about the events, but then went silent for 14 hours, illustrating the trouble that the CCP propagandists were faced with to spin the story. Putin's stature in the PRC was one of a solid Iron Man on full control, facing up to the hated West, and America in particular. Seeing him humiliated by a hot dog salesman is rather unemperorly. Putin's televised speech to the nation showed an aged man, visibly rattled by the developments and the outcome, even peaceful as it may be, clearly left the Russian president's image diminished. It just happened that Russian Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs Rudenko was in Beijing meeting with Minister Qingang and his deputy Ma Zhaoxu. On Sunday, apparently, Ma admonished Rudenko to 
communicate and cross-check in a timely manner in the face of the complex and difficult international atmosphere. Meanwhile, the ordinary Chinese followed the events with interest, and the story was apparently clicked one and a half billion times on Weibo. It's an unusual level of popularity for a non-domestic event. Chinese netizens invariably compare these events to the 8th century massacre called Anlushan Rebellion, so Anlushan Shijian, which, according to some estimates, wiped out a sixth of the world's population, and all of this in China, by the way. And for the classic film buffs, an episode story from that era uh, was immortalized by Kenji Mizoguchi's 1955 feature entitled Princess Yang Weifei. So I recommend that classic. That's about that event in 8th century in China. Now, just as Prigozhin betrayed his patron in Moscow, so did An Lushan, a Turkic warrior, turn against the imperial house in Xi'an during the Tang era. Instability of a neighboring, friendly dictatorship is bad news for the Chinese Communist Party because it shows that the military could quite quickly transmute into kingmakers, regardless of the large-scale military reshuffle that each and every party boss in China engages in the moment he steps into his role. So expect even more political scrutiny by the Chinese Communist Party over the People's Liberation Army. Secondly, the second reason why we don't think this was a maskirovka in Russia. Moscow regime's relative standing among its immediate neighbors was appended. Putin apparently sought support from his partners in Central Asia, but Kazakhstan's president, Tokayev, stayed mum. This is an unwelcome development for the Kremlin, given the rush with which Moscow expedited its support for Astana in early 2022. Nor was any of the other Central Republics forthcoming with words of support. For each capital, it was Russia's internal affairs, but the meaning of the statement depends on who utters it. Third reason, one person that seems ready to curry Putin's favor was Erdogan. There are two reasons for this. First, Turkey's strongman is still aching from the 2016 coup uh, attempt in his country. It does appear that his ego suffered hugely in the event, and even the recent elections have not provided much of a needed balm for the Turkish autocrat. But Erdogan has also a stake in Wagner's demise, especially in Libya, where Wagner runs a profitable operation constraining and siphoning production from several oil fields. Importantly, while Ankara backs a GNA government of national accord in Tripoli, Wagner appears to side with al in Benghazi and in Tobruk in eastern Libya, in support of Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, who leads this al Libyan National Army. Wagner's employees in Libya are not necessarily only Russians, there are also Serbs there and Syrians. And according to Erdogan, the group has benefited from support provided by United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia in Libya. The fourth reason why I do not think that this was a pure theater is the actual combat, however limited, that did take place. Quite why the Russian Air Force did not just flatten the advancing Wagner column is unclear. That's the source of many conspiracy theories. Ultimately, if you just parse through the history of military coup worldwide, Air Force is almost always on the loyalist side. But Russian loyalists did blow up a Wagner truck, and Wagner, which has its arsenal of anti-aircraft and panzer systems, shot down three helicopters into the ocean. So at least 20 Russian, 20 Russian servicemen died in those incidents. So it does not entirely look like a Truman show to me. The fifth and final reason is that Prigozhin, in his response to Putin's statement, 
blew the cover on what this special operation actually means. While the key propagandists of the Russian TV, such as Margarita Simonyan or Solovyov, had no spin to offer over those hot hours, here is a pro-war gangster with his own social media channel who goes on record saying that the military is covering up the number of killed soldiers in the Ukrainian war, and that the war itself was launched under false pretense because the heads of the military could no longer cover up the corruption that since 2014 had run aground the occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Now, how is that supposed to benefit the regime? When Prigozhin states that Ukraine never attacked Russia and that Putin was lied to by his generals, that's an eye-opener to many in Russia. But know that the lingering value of that old imperial adage in Russia, that is, the boyars are bad, but the Tsar, well, still good, until the next statement. What kind of pro-Putin conspiracy would that straight talk involve? That would only make sense if Putin had been completely emasculated by his military and unable to make personal reshuffle himself. Did he really need Prigozhin to make changes in the military? And if so, where is that reshuffle? So let us completely sweep aside the hypothesis of this being staged by the FSB and instead look at why Prigozhin and company made this attempt on Friday and Saturday. The very timing of the action may have only two drivers. One is a window of opportunity. The other one is a sudden need to hedge risk. Let us start with the window of opportunity. Certainly, Friday night is a propitious moment to launch an offensive as so many of the security personnel, just like the rest of the populace, heads for the Dachos in warming Russia, to pickle in cucumbers, vodka, and Russia's emblematic nostalgia after better times. So the frame of the window was wide open. So what is on the other side? Or rather, who was there on the other side waiting? Prigozhin spent several months touring the country, ostensibly to recruit prisoners as cannon fodder for his operation in Bakhmut. He visited every region in the country, speaking to many mid-level officials, both civilian and military. He thus collected more life material than any Kremlin mouse could ever dream of. He must have been offered words of support from the pro-war factions frustrated by the limited progress in Ukraine and high human cost of the invasion. But that does not answer the question who, in the core center of the power structure, offered to back him in his feud against the corruption that plagues the army. Within the Russian elite, we can distinguish at least four or five groups. One is the hardline Sidoviki group that has been in power since the late 1990s and has adapted itself to dividing the spoils from accumulating the state-directed wealth, predominantly in the resources business. This is an aging rentier class, including Putin's long-term collaborators, such as Sechin and Miller, both running oil and gas assets. It's the FSB, Roskvardia, the Security Council, provincial governors whose jobs depend directly on Putin. Former President Medvedev is a hanger-on here, never entirely secure, and hence acting really as the clown of the club. The second group is composed of political figureheads appointed to lead federal offices and the organs of the so-called legislative, which has been steadily emasculated by the presidential power creep. This group is the most fearful of any elite reshuffle as potentially threatened by a military coup, as it consists mostly of yes-men and yes-women, with little alternative source of power. The third group are the remaining technocrats, Prime Minister Mishustin, Central Bank Governor Nabolina, and Sergei Kirilenko, the former Prime Minister, who is currently Chief of Staff of the Presidential Administration. The fourth group is the army, where the top has remained remarkably stable since the beginning of the war, but where one general, Sergei Surovikin, exercised the role of the commander of the all-Russian forces between October last year and January this year when he was sidelined. 
that's an important point. Finally, what we can call the oligarchs, who these days are little more than custodians of state assets, or at least of assets that can be easily repurposed by the state. They do not represent any direct anti-state power, as we have learned since the beginning of the invasion in Ukraine, but could be involved in some backroom deals when the succession race accelerates. With the exception of the oligarchs, it is worth going through those four groups to find out how they reacted during the hottest hours of Prigozhin's so-called March of Justice on Moscow. First, the Siloviki. Surprisingly, few open voices of support for Putin here. One reason could be the active joking among this group for succession that predates Prigozhin's move, since some form of succession will, inevitably, loom during the next year's election. The only one who explicitly backed the president was Sergei Narishkin, head of the Foreign Intelligence Service. No word from Alexander Portnikov, who runs the FSB, Federal Security Service, nor from Viktor Zolotov, head of Putin's personal security service known as Rosgvardia. And by the way, he's also Yeltsin's former bodyguard. It would be ultimately the role of Rosgvardia to defend Putin physically, but the force of nominally 300,000 people is poorly equipped to fight a heavy military advance. We did not hear anything from Petrushev either, arguably the most powerful man there, head of the Security Council and commonly considered the kingmaker in the case of succession. The second group, the political figureheads, rushed in their gushing support for Putin. We heard such soothing words from Valentina Matvienko, who heads the Council of the Federation, and from the chairman of Duma Vyacheslav Volodin. This support is not surprising, but of little effective value should the Wagner group reach the walls of the Kremlin, as these people are easily replaceable. Nor did the technocrats express themselves, with the exception of Kirilenko, forever branded for the 1998 economic debacle, and who survives essentially as a Putin man, it is not really surprising. People like Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin or Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobyanin have long maintained silence when hot political issues surface, and that includes the Ukrainian war. And the army? Well, the biggest question regards the case of Surovikin, who lost his top job to Gerasimov in January, and who is considered close to Prigozhin and to Wagner in general. Surovikin may be upset that he is not getting sufficient credit for fortifying the defense lines in the Zaporozhye region to the level of a new Maginot line, making it very difficult currently for the Ukrainian counteroffensive to break through it. Ukraine is changing its tactics, by the way, attacking again the logistics and the depots of the Russian forces. From the Ukrainian perspective, more moves such as the Russian-Russian standoff over fuel depots in Voronezh, not to mention the paralysis in the main logistics hub of Rostov, the center of the military southern district, would have been of great value, but it didn't last. In his response to Prigozhin, Putin clearly took the side of Shoigu and Gerasimov. This type of continuity undermines again the hypothesis of the coup being staged. Nor has the Kremlin used the opportunity to pull the plug on the special operation. None of the scenarios proves that the coup attempt was not real. But as the fallout is becoming clearer, the question arises whom the regrouping in the wake of the putsch benefits most. And three days after the event, it does appear that some Siloviki are coming on top, in particular Roskvardia, whose relative weakness in terms of equipment was revealed during the crisis. The boss of Roskvardia, Zolotov, will now receive significant heavy weaponry, including artillery and tanks, something that was not needed against peaceful demonstrators, but that what would be needed in a scenario of a broader civil war in Russia. And that means relative weakening of the regular army. What's more worrisome, however, is the reaction of the West. In an interview with the British broadcaster, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, 
stuck to a three-sentence script like an old vinyl record, unable to cough up any variation of his message, even though the questions were different. In Washington, Blinken and company channeled their George Bush I in the panic which I called the Directorate 12 syndrome. The Directorate 12 is the Russian army that deals with the nuclear arsenal. Any move by Wagner towards the silos would probably trigger a collective seppuku in Washington. Recall that George Bush I hectored Kiev against nationalism and independence while obsessing about the Soviet nukes falling, potentially, in the wrong hands. With this obsession constraining American policy towards Russia's recurrent implosions, Eastern Europe will remain subject to Moscow's prowling. Western Europe will continue dreaming of the Kremlin as the cornerstone of stability on the continent, and Beijing will continue to play the West by pretending its interests are aligned with Russia's. Ukraine's, Baltics, Finland's, Poland's, Romania's, and Moldova's long-term strategic objective remains the collapse, ultimate collapse of Russia as we know. The fear that somehow it means strengthening China is unwarranted, is untested. There is no inevitability in Yakutia or Primorsky becoming China's vassals any more than them becoming a straw partner of Japan or South Korea. Ukrainian diaspora in the Russian Far East has been very active undermining the region's subservience to Putin's Moscow, and the opportunity for a major unraveling of Russia's imperial project at the next succession should not be underestimated. The population of Kaliningrad, separated from the rest of the Federation and potentially destabilized by the militarization and nuclearization of Belarus, might also show European ambitions. It is not only nuclear risk, it is also a great opportunity for the world's peace. Alas, that's not how Washington views it. But the longer Moscow blackmails the rest of the world with the use of its tactical nukes, the deeper the conviction in Tehran, in Seoul, in Ankara, and in Warsaw, and maybe even one day in Tokyo, that owning nukes may be the only answer. And what stands between Russia and the West? Geographically, Belarus. And that's the key to solving the Ukrainian issue. At the height of the crisis, both Pavel Latushko, the exiled responsible for power transition in Minsk, and the Belarusian Kalinovsky regime fighting alongside Ukrainian troops against Russian invasion, made appeals to the Belarusian army to shake off the creeping control by Moscow. President Lukashenko, always fearful of the loss of support in Moscow, agreed to stand in as a negotiator with Prigozhin, but his role was just a fig leaf to avoid the perception that the Kremlin negotiates directly with the unchained warlords. Yes, Lukashenko never quite abandoned his dream to run Russia, but his chances during the next year's succession struggle are minimal. On the contrary, if Wagner was ever to show up in Belarus, Lukashenko's hand could be further constrained, not to mention a threat that such a presence would represent for Kiev. Even if this chapter is closed now, and a purge in the Russian military in search of Wagner's supporters will weaken the cohesion of Moscow's forces. And just like it was Iraq and Oman that negotiated the rapprochement between Riyadh and Tehran, but needed Beijing for a photo op, it was not really Lukashenko who came up with the deal with Prigozhin. It's a sign of weakness of the Kremlin that Lukashenko, generally disliked by Putin, was brought to fulfill this role. The winner of the battle, so far, seems to be Alexei Dumin, currently the governor of Tula and previously chief security guard around Putin. He represents a younger wing of the Siloviki group and, should he manage to reassure the likes of Petrushev of their long-term security, he might now emerge on top of the race. Dumin played a key role in the GRU's takeover of Crimea almost a decade ago. So if Prigozhin overplayed his hand, Duming certainly masterfully laid out his. 
This is important because both the U.S. intelligence and Kirill Budanov, the head of intelligence in Ukraine, had foreseen the gradual collapse of the Russian leadership. Prigozhin's action, if anything, showed the potential for rebellion within the regular army. In Rostov, in Voronezh, where the 20th Army is headquartered, and on the way to Lipetsk, or even further north. Even if from now on this process will be protracted, the events have already revealed how easy it is for a well-established mafia state to be shaken up by an armed gang. That's all for today. Let's meet again in a week from now. Have a great week.